Hey everybody, welcome back to the Deep Dive Podcast. It's the Deep Dive for another week. Theological conversations. Colin, how you doing, man? I am excellent. It's been a busy week, but yeah. it's kept me out of trouble. The cold uh, getting to you? Are you almost done with almost, that or what? Yeah, I'm all, I am. I was cold done. today, man. It's just um, cold feet. But we've had some nice weather, like uh, at least temperature-wise. Maybe yeah, not you, wind and rain-wise. That's right. But Again, not sure when this will come out, but we're recording this in March, and I always yes. feel like you get those. You get a few days where you're kind of teased with the sunshine, and then uh, I always say. After St. Patrick's Day, I expect one more major snowfall, but then that's it. And then my patience runs out, so I allow oh, yeah, it to. Oh, yeah, St. Patrick's Day is coming up. Is, is that is that St. a is that a thing for for you? Do you do you often like? Oh do no, something I mean, for well, no, Day? I'd be more like uh, as a Scot, more Robbie Burns Day would there be more my kind of thing. But I mean, um, Pat, St. Patrick's Day has always been—I don't know—it's a fun day, an excuse for people to kind of take work yes. off, and for some people, it's an excuse to just drink too much. But yes. I mean. Uh, <laughs> but it's always like, yeah, it's, you know, you live in a university town. It's uh it's a day you remember. <laughs> <laughs> um, People go nuts. My wife's best friend back in Kitchener uh, is uh, Scottish. Shout out to Fiona. She's probably not listening to this. She <laughs> used to always she hate it when her and her husband, uh, when her husband and I would wax on about theology. So she's definitely not listening to this, but kudos to, to, uh, hey. to Fiona. Cause she's from Ireland and she would always throw really good, What's up with uh, that? Eh? I, this uh, this happens to me all the time. I always talk theology in every room that I'm in, and people are like, "Give it a rest." And I'm like, "Why? <laughs> what do you want to talk about? Kim and Kanye? That's boring." No, but totally. Although, totally. if you end up talking about Kim and Kanye, I will turn that theological very yes. quickly too. <laughs> yes, there. You know are, what? It's there are a, some folks, some not not just ladies, but I find it more ladies than guys. Yeah, who are just very uncomfortable with. Talk in theology because they feel like yeah. it can be a divisive subject. It's sometimes divisive. I think sometimes it's also like it is just alienating. And actually, and that's kind of what we want to talk about today. Uh, but the idea that theology, obviously, it has an academic side to yep. it. It doesn't always have to be truly, but um, you know, it is a discipline. And well, there's I different think- levels of theology, right? There's everyday theology, which is just. You're sitting around your water cooler talking about the sermon on yeah. Sunday. You know, I, I feel theology. like it could be very similar to like if I were at a room in a room with you and then you started talking to like other buddies of yours about like Star Wars at a very high intensity level. There's, and I'd be like, I don't know who these people are. You know what I mean? Or I don't know what the thing is. So always trying to break it down a little bit and making it like, here's why, <laughs> here's why it matters, you know, is a yeah. good thing. But I totally understand. I've, I've no shortage of people in my life who, uh, who probably are not listening to this podcast because they're just like, I'll leave the theology. Oh, Rene Girard again, yeah, again. Oh. It used to be Ponenberg. I would bring up Wolfhart Ponenberg all the time. Well, that, and then well, why wouldn't you? I was known like as the, Pannenberg. when I was in my undergrad, I was known as the prolepsis guy. And they're like, Oh, go talk to Ben. I'll tell you about prolepsis. Cause if you get a is master's for acne, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Sounds like it's a cream works really well. If you talk to anybody or if you talk to like any PhD or a master's level student writing a thesis and you get them going on their topic, I mean, yeah, buckle up, yes. you know, I yes. try to refrain from doing that. But anyway, here's my thesis. Um, no, I'm kidding. Uh, so yeah, today, that'll thought, be another, uh, another podcast today. We'll I thought that. we could talk about, uh, um, I, I want to title this. What are you doing at church? Yes. <laughs> and the emphasis not what being on the you. Doing yeah, at not church. on the you. Not on the you. Emphasis being the, what are you doing? What are you doing? And kind of just maybe the question is, you know, like what is the church? And what do we mean by that? And what are we 
um, what what kind of activities do we participate in here that look different across the board and why? I, the reason I bring this up, Colin, is because I feel like um, coming from where we're coming from, not, not everyone who listens to this podcast obviously goes to our church, although I'm sure it's the majority, but um, we're in a Wesleyan context. Yep. This church was founded in a movie theater, right? Yes. Okay, so that's very different. Uh, it has certain kind of practices and things that we do. And my guess is, is certainly for people here, but uh, maybe elsewhere, like the majority of people I find who have found faith later in their lives or come to church and are a part of a community probably aren't doing it out of like a denominational decision they've made, right? Not everybody is like GK Chesterton, like, should I be a Catholic or an Anglican? And then deciphering this for, you know, 10 years before making a decision They're they're probably walking into a community having a feel for it, being like, this seems good. Uh, yeah. The teaching seems appropriate, this, okay. whatever. And then they... What, what you were brought up doing. Yeah. What is comfortable from what you were brought up with. Or or on the other side, if you were really uncomfortable with the church tradition that you grew up in, oh, you're big not going to go to that, another. so you're going to try something different. Right. And then, right. yeah, do you click And then you maybe the have like an allergic like, or an aversion completely to anything that's remotely like that or, yeah. Yes. Yeah, for sure. I mean, like I was raised in the Anglican church. My father is an Anglican priest, retired now, but, um, you know, so I, I grew up in Anglican church world, not really high church uh, Anglican. You know, there's kind of gradients of like how contemporary it feels or whatever. But, you know, like coming to deep water later in my 20s, uh, you know, there were distinctive differences, of course. And it's uh, it's interesting me to talk about them. And I one of the reasons, too, why I want to talk about this is more for unity's sake than there is about division. I think some people, like you said, when you bring up theology, some people want to move away from it because it's divisive. Yes. And certainly the division of the church in general, I think is one of the biggest issues in theology today. Um, uh, my own supervisor, Ephraim Radner, writes a lot on this topic, uh, on ecumenism, the idea of mm. like how do churches, not only how do denominations sort of work together, but even outside of Christianity, you know, how do you, how do Christians and Muslims dialogue, all these kinds of things. The division that's even within the church is a, is a thing that keeps people away. And, yes. uh, you know, it's a big problem. And I think if you really kind of look at church tradition though, and look at what different churches, how different churches see themselves or define the church, you'll find that most of the time there's going to be some particularities that we might disagree on, but the emphases are always sort of, we, we can share them. They're yes. just not necessarily, they're not to the exclusion of the other, you know? And I think a lot of the, like, I understand that for many people, Christians and otherwise, uh, the many denominations of Christianity can be a problem, mm-hmm. but I think on one level it, it can. It's also just natural. Christianity's been around for two thousand years. It's spread out to That's a right. whole bunch of countries and cultures around the world. So on one level, I think it would. It just makes sense that there's going to be some churches that reflect cultural values mm-hmm. of of like, say, for example, the the new Canadians coming here to Canada. Mm-hmm. They're going to bring not just their language and their culture, but they're going to bring their their church and their style of doing church. Of course. So you're going to have uh, folks uh, who come from a Catholic background and, and they'll bring their Catholic values, Orthodox and very, all the other Protestant yeah. things that we have too. I think that some of Protestants typically deal with or the question at some point that, you know, you have the Orthodox church, the Eastern Orthodox, then you have the Catholics 
And then you have like 5,000 denominations of, <laughs> of, you're right, of yeah. Protestants. And we, it's like we just <laughs> proliferate and do this. And that can seem very problematic, obviously. In a way, it is. But I would also say that, you know, if you look within Catholicism itself, um, with even within that unity, there's great uh, uh, diversity. Absolutely. And, um, and, and hopefully, for the most part, I think Protestants can see each other as being like that, you know. And, and I don't even want to say that we're all under one umbrella or something like But just to say... Um, yeah. You know, that the Wesleyan and the Baptist can get along quite well if, yes. you know, like it's really, you know, we agree on most things. And then what are the differences and why? And so I think this is important just for or at least helpful for people to kind of recognize, like, how is it that my church sees itself? How does it define itself yes. uh, as opposed to like where other churches see themselves? Yeah, so it can be problematic that there's a whole bunch of variations with churches, but yeah, it ain't always necessarily so. It ain't always necessarily so. Yeah, exactly. And I think, and I think it's important, especially for the church. I think it's always been important for the church, but especially today that ecumenism be something we are focused on and something we want to try and and, and work toward. You know, um, there were there have been massive movements in the past. The World Council of Churches, for instance, in the twentieth yes. century. I mean, like these Great these movements to try and Necessary. get people together. You know, and it's and uh, you know, COVID nineteen is actually for the first time in history. I remember reading that uh, it was the first time the uh, the Pope. The uh, the head bishop, the father of the Orthodox Church, and the the patriarch they call him, and then the uh, arch who did I say Archbishop of Canterbury of the Anglican uh, Church all got together for like the first time ever to discuss COVID and what was going to happen. But it was like they had never been together in the same room before. You Is know, just when you talk about you know what do you do at church, and then you talk about ecumenism, it's interesting. I'm mm. just putting a connection together here because I think a lot of people, if you were just to ask them, what do you do at church? We're thinking of Sunday morning, right? And, and I think there on a Sunday morning, you check out a bunch of different churches, uh, just even here in the HRM, you know, if you yeah. were to do a tour of a different church each Sunday of a year or something like that, you would get such a, a varied flavor for sure. of church. But it's interesting. I used to work for a uh, an organization in Kitchener-Waterloo that was interdenominational, uh, mostly evangelical, but we had some uh, church groups from Catholic and Orthodox churches as well that would come in and help serve. Mm-hmm. And pre- predominantly what we would do, like the predominant kind of volunteer involvement aspect of the organization was working with folks who were poor or homeless and putting on meals or whatever. And and I, that actually was one of the best things about that job was was being able to to rub shoulders with people from every branch of the Christian tree yeah, as we're cool. all working together on something that the whole church can agree on, and that is that folks who are less disadvantaged really awesome, yeah. need help. And so it's interesting, right isn't on. it? That Sunday morning is very divisive, and you'd get a totally different feel for things. Right. And yet we can all come together, no mm-hmm. matter how different we are, and say, yeah, we need to feed people who are poor. We need to be good to folks who are that's, have less. And, and that's really the aim, I think. of Ecumenism is, I don't think the aim should ever be that we're just trying to like make you think our doctrines are correct and you're trying to make us think yours are, right? I think we have to kind of put that to bed and say, that's just the, that's the way it's going to be. We're going to have those differences. What can we get along with and what can we... We, and, and, and I think, you know, when you go into the history of this and you actually look at some of the things that have divided the church, I can understand to a lot of people that they seem quite silly, 
right? That why would you split hairs over these things? But you, you do have to, in a sense, appreciate the the kind of weight behind some of these uh, teachings and things that the, the way in which they think about it. And that's kind of what I want to talk about is just the like the orientation toward like how you define the church. How do you find the character of God? What is the main emphasis there? Informs kind of everything else. So, for instance, like the Eastern and Western Church, the Catholicism and Orthodoxy historically have split over something called the filioque clause, which is in the creeds. And it's literally just the line filioque just is and the son, the Holy spirit who proceeded from the father and the son. Yes. And you'd think like, is that a big enough deal to separate people? And, 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 you know, the more you look into it and kind of go like, what's the whole theology behind the idea that the spirit could proceed from both father and the son it's amazing where you can go with that. And so I don't, I, I, in one way, I do think it's absolutely silly that anyone would divide over something like that. But, um, but these things carry significant weight with them they and they, you know, where you can end up with that teaching yeah. might surprise some people of what it can, what it can do. Again, I think politics, culture, and language had a big part to play in the schism yes. between the, the East and the West. Uh, yeah, and I don't, sorry, I didn't well. mean to that the filioque clause yeah, was like the only, the, whole, the no, entirety of, of it, but it, it, just, it was a significant factor. Yeah, and it remains and, a significant factor. It's but I mean, the, the Eastern Church had, like the, the Roman Empire had been split, and the yeah. church at that time was pretty much grafted into the empire, right. you know, uh, so, so the, the Eastern church, uh, became more Greek, mm-hmm. uh, linguistically and culturally, the West remained more, um, independent from the East because it was in under more trouble, like more barbarians coming mm-hmm. down and taking over Rome every generation <laughs> or two. Yeah. And, and they were more Latin. That's right. And, and, and that's where you see kind of like the, the, the emphasis of different theologians. So the West Catholicism rests largely on the theology of St. Augustine, right? right? Like Augustine is the guy there. Um, he's respected across, you know, the East obviously still have a respect for Augustine, but they're probably leaning more to people like uh, Gregory of Nyssa, uh, Basil the Great, right? All these different, you know, so you see- John Chrysostom. John Chrysostom, Chrysostom, Chrysostom. Again, my pronunciations of Golden mouth. But the point is, is yeah, you get like, and those guys have distinctive understandings. This is one of the reasons actually, you know, not to go into this topic, but you and I had been talking recently about this notion of universal salvation. You find that far more prominent in Eastern Orthodox uh, understandings simply because their theology deals less with, say, ransom and guilt uh, Mm. ideas that show up in Augustine and then later Calvin. Uh, they're really more about manumission, freedom from freedom from the tyranny of the world kind of thing. So that would be like just a different, it's not to say that those theologies are mutually exclusive. No, it's just, and, and it's not just to say a difference either, of emphasis. A different event. Yeah. Different emphasis. And it's not to say that all Eastern Orthodox people, by the way, think uh, in universal salvation terms or something yes, like that, sure. but it's a, it's a lean toward that side of things. And, and, uh, well, and we take on a different as tone. Well, because the Orthodox church back in the day was led by a group of patriarchs, bishops, whoever you want to call them, in a, in a more, in a council sense. So there was, I think, maybe baked in to right. the eastern part of the church and empire, more of a pluralism. It's not to say that, uh, it's not to say that the Eastern Orthodox are 
more uh, communal or pluralistic or something like that. But I think this goes to the way in which they see themselves as the church. So um, to, to begin, by the way, the, the terminology we would use for this is ecclesiology. Ecclesia is the church, so the study of the church is ecclesiology. That's the big $5 word that everyone should know if they're talking about you know, what you do at church and the kind of functions of it. The word of the day is ecclesiology. (laughs) And this, you know, ecclesia uh, is the Greek. Uh, You know, you can do a kind of word study on this. It comes from the Hebrew kahal. And and it's interesting where you first kind of see that appear. Uh, Kahal is the, the assembly of the called people uh, who are called in the Exodus out of Egypt. Mm. And it's interesting that the first time that's referenced, it is to, so that they may come and worship me, God says. So there's, I think Wesleyans have kind of honed in on that idea of like, our purpose is to worship God first and foremost, mm. and then evangelicalism and all that kind of stuff, which seems to be a major part of, say, the Wesleyan tradition is is still in a way secondary to worship. Yes. Um, and again, like I'm saying, that's that's certainly an emphasis I see in Wesleyanism. It's not exclusive to anywhere else. It's just, you know, that would be something we would focus in on. So ecclesiology is what we're talking about. Uh, beginning with something like the Orthodox Church, and maybe we can treat sort of Catholicism and Orthodoxy a little bit together here. Um, it's my understanding that the Eastern Orthodox church sees themselves, understands themselves, if you were to say, what is the church to you? They see it as an icon of the Trinity. So two terms there are very important. First is icon. What is an icon? If you go back to the writings of somebody named John of Damascus, I uh, did a whole thing on what's the difference between an icon and an idol. And an icon, you know, you should never make an idol of God. But the idea was that God has made himself flesh. He is, he, you know, the invisible God has made himself visible in the reality that we're in. Yep. And therefore, Icons aren't to be worshipped, they're to be venerated. But this idea of image, aesthetic, beauty, right? Um, a, a portrayal through artistic and creative endeavor of the divine is something huge to the Eastern Orthodox tradition. If you go to some of the Eastern Orthodox churches here in Nova Scotia, uh, which I'm sure not a lot of people even know where they are or that they exist, you walk into some of those places. I mean, it's just the beauty is transcendent. You're blown away by like the craftsmanship. It's, it's incredible. Um, that's what they're trying to do. It's, uh, and, and this is where I say you can kind of treat Catholicism in the same way that their understanding of church, when you go to the building that is church, um, it's more of a theater than it is a lecture hall, mm. right? There's a kind of Protestant emphasis that changes, right? Where we kind of move to like the sermon as being the gospel, the spoken word takes center stage. Yes. Uh, for Orthodox and for Catholics, that looks far more like this is a drama that unfolds. And so the whole place, the, the, the actual space you're in, has to magnify the glory of God in that way. It has to look, it's ornate. It's, you know, there's, there's gold and there's massive paint. There's you know, pictures everywhere depicting the, the kind of things going on. Uh, there's been an emphasis on the reverse in the Protestant world to kind of take away those symbols because, yes. well, it might be alienating to people. Yes. Um, again, I, I, there's could, a lot of confusion about icons and and what yeah what this sacred art in the you can Catholic debate sense. about that and what's better, what's um, worse, but I think know, it's I, I I recall some old schoolers, uh, you know, old school pastors I knew. Uh, like who were professors when I was in Bible college and just other folks who I would meet over the years, just had a really terrible sense that, you know, Catholic churches and their statues of right, Mary and, right. and the apostles and saints and mm-hmm. like that just, oh, 
they just bristled against that, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. So there's some negative views of that from the Protestant side. For sure. Uh, uh, well. Yeah, there's been confusion about that. And, and I mean, and again, like you could go to places where, yeah, there's certainly disagreements that people can have about that. But, but it's more just, uh, you know, I think helpful at least for people to go back and say like, but how do they understand themselves? So why is that appropriate yes. to them and not to us? And why, or, and why would it look that way? And so, you know, an icon of the Trinity, if you, this is again, speaking of Orthodox, if you see yourself as an icon of the Trinity, there's that, the other term there, Trinity says something about the way in which you conduct yourself. Everything is a movement from the father to the son, to the spirit. Everything is this, another $5 word there is called perichoresis. Perichoresis is the mutual indwelling, the sort of dance of the Trinity, right? Of giving and and receiving of all of them. The son is in the spirit. And there's certain passages of of Paul, like I think I'm thinking especially of, is it Romans 8? Right. Where... He you he you he talks of the father, the son, and the spirit yeah. interchangeably. How they if, all acting together. Yes. And so this is the idea that in the in the Orthodox Church there's a sort of more spirit pneumatic sense in which everything is communal. And this is why the Eucharist is center stage. So the Eucharist, the communion is the center of worship, not the preaching of the word, because what is the Eucharist? It is the communal. We are all, this is where they go to first Corinthians 10 and they say, what is the bread? It is, is it not the body of Christ that we are all partaking in here? Right. What is the wine? Is it not the blood shed for us that we are all partaking in? So it's this communal and what you notice, I, kind of a funny thing. I had a friend who recently got uh, married in a, in a Orthodox church. His, his wife's Russian and, uh, and the ceremony is so interesting. They do everything three times because Trinity. So even the rings, you, you know, you exchange the rings three times. Interesting. Yeah. You, uh, you know, they, they, you kind of walk around. If you do the sign of the cross three times, right? It's not just once. Everything is triune. So that's just an emphasis that you constantly see happening, right? Very interesting. But I think that differentiation of like, it's a theater as opposed to a, a lecture, right? Yes. A teaching moment as a, you know, is more Protestant style. The Catholic Church also, they would see themselves, the term I would use is as the people of God. The, the Greek word laos, like the people of God. And again, there's that institutional kind of frame to it. So, so. also that theater aspect, this is a drama that is unfolding. And that is why the, you know, the priest takes on a different role than a pastor in a Protestant church. A priest is a representation of Christ, is a... You know, and, and that's also something you see in the Orthodox world is the, you know, the Eucharist can't happen without a bishop. Why? Because the bishop is the shepherd of the people. It, it speaks to the sort of the communal aspect of it. If you take communion in a Catholic church, it is administered to you by clergy, right? The fact that it is, it is again, received and given from Christ, you know, from this, they're depicting who Christ is. So there's that drama element again. But you can also see where there's a little bit of the sense in which it, it's also seeing itself as an institutional, uh, there's, there's a whole formal set of hierarchies of, you know, you have deacons and bishops and... and, and hierarchies are big for Catholics and Orthodox. Right, folks. exactly. And, I, and we talked about that on a previous podcast between egalitarianism and complementarianism right, and that idea. And like there's... There's good reasons for hierarchy in some cases, but that emphasis begins to shift. When you get to Lutheranism, when you get to the Protestant Reformation, 
you see, obviously, in the Reformation, Luther is challenging the papacy. Uh, large. That's what the 95 theses, you know, put to the cathedral door, are mainly complaints about the pope. Um, and there's a whole bunch of stuff going on there, but it's a lot of the institutional stuff that he's condemning. And it's a lot of, you know, he wants to bring this into what's called the priesthood of all believers. This, this makes a massive impact in the Protestant world, where yes. um, when you are baptized into the church— you you are not only partaking of the life of Christ that me or by partaking in the life of Christ you partaking in his mission and his preaching so now everybody in some sense is called and qualified to preach yes um, which is a radical democratization compared to that's right. the models of the catholic church and the that's the right. orthodox church yeah yeah, you ahead. also you also see in Lutheranism. I think this is where uh, you, you know, as we've been talking about, like okay, icon of the Trinity, people of God. And by the way, when I say you know the people of God, the Catholics used to. I don't want to shortchange them or or not say enough, right? Um, the Catholics had understood themselves as like the perfect society was a was a phrase they would use, and by that they didn't mean that everyone was perfect, but that they are a representation of the heavenly kingdom on earth. That's mm. kind of part of the drama and the theater of it. Um, uh, th- that that has a sort of let's say an institutional kind of sense to it. Even icon of the Trinity and uh, and people of God both kind of state this is a thing that they are right. Yes. Whereas in Lutheranism, what you end up finding post Reformation is more of a sense of what's called actualism, where church and this probably sounds more familiar to Protestants who are listening that it's like the church is no longer an institution; it's a thing going on. Right. What is the church? It's a thing that's happening. It's not a place. It's a, right? And, and again, I, I don't want to say that that's not Better within worse, these other traditions. You know, yeah. I'm just saying it's, it's, it becomes more the emphasis as you move into Protestant understandings. And so then Luther also gets into maybe what we would call is like a dialectical understanding of the church, where it is, his famous phrase is, uh, simul justus e peccator, simultaneously justified and sinful. So it's this idea of like the church is the priesthood of all believers. We're all wretched sinners, but we are all justified, and therefore you are all kind of on the same playing field. And then you have the Anabaptist movement, yes. which, which many Anabaptists wouldn't even necessarily see themselves as Protestants. Right. They see themselves as something different, distinctly different. Mm-hmm. They didn't think that Luther and some of the other reformers like Calvin and Zwingli, and Zwingli yeah. they didn't go far enough. That's right. And they they would so, be like a far left movement in terms of if you're talking left right movements of the Reformation, oh, the Counter right, Reformation. God bless you but, for saying it. Yeah. But, well, just a position kind yeah. of what they because they're a radical kind they of. Were. They were. They were. And so they they brought and so that idea of of priesthood of believers became that much more right. radical. That idea of being the people of God um, became that much more um, uh, poignant. Um, to be a people of faith that yeah um there's more asked for and, and please forgive me I, again as you said i'm not when i say more i'm not necessarily trying to say better i'm just saying i think for 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 anabaptists because they were persecuted by both during the reformation by both um protestants and catholics i mean if they were caught right, yeah doing right, uh, right. believing what they believed sharing their faith as they saw it Mm-hmm. With with folks, the authorities would throw them in prison or execute mm-hmm. them or both, and so that so in that sense, that specific context, not necessarily from a 
scriptural understanding. I'm sure there's many Catholics and Orthodox folks. And so. they're a real, you know, I think we've talked about that on a previous podcast too, just a few things about Anabaptists because one of their, you know, they're pacifists as a movement, but yes. they're also, they also, one of the things we said was they take Acts 2 as descriptive, not, or as prescriptive, not descriptive. In other words, they live in communion with each other. Like the, the Anabaptist idea is that like, you should not really even own property. You should kind of share everything mutually Certain with branches each other. of Anabaptism. Oh, well, I think what like Anabaptism that. looks like Hutterites, now is a lot different a than more. what it was. Yeah. But I mean, that's what the kind of radical movement they were. When you get to the Reformed churches, if we were to say what defines Reformed churches, um, the terminology I've heard used there is, is they are a covenant uh, church, mm. meaning, and this kind of goes from somebody like Calvin, it goes to that like priesthood of all believers is like, now you also have the responsibility to be a disciple, to really like follow your own personal sanctification and that process of obedience to Jesus Christ. And so there's this sort of co co not you you would never say with calvin that you're doing co anything because god does everything but it's it's more (laughs) the sense of like you are to be obedient and to partake in the life of the christian in a major way and so there's a covenant relationship that it's like you have to hold up your end of the bargain as part of a member of this church and so you find that in reformed kind of uh, ecclesiology is that it, it carries that understanding I think it might be important to just maybe point out more in terms of like, what are you doing at church? All of these ways of seeing yourself, uh, you know, or defining your church as say icon of the Trinity or as, as simultaneously justified in sinner, wherever your emphasis is, it carries out then much different liturgical forms or ways of doing church, right? Liturgy being the sort of actions that we do in, in a church uh, on a regular Sunday morning. You know what I mean? What are you engaged in? Um, here where we are, we typically have a very stripped back kind of understanding of what we do. We come in, we sing a song, we hear the word because of COVID. We haven't really been taking the sacrament, but typically that's a weekly thing for us because word and sacrament again, become in the Catholic church, you have seven sacraments, Protestant reformation happens Luther goes down to two, right? Yeah. It's just the word and the sacrament. These are the two things. And, and that's where, you know, it's the gathered assembly. It's a thing that's happening. What is the church? It is the gathering of people to hear the word and receive the sacrament. And so then when you're talking about things like Eucharist, communion, whatever, whatever words you choose, um, uh, the sermon, worship, we're talking about this word liturgy. That's right. right. And so every church... It's not that there's some churches that are more liturgical than others, although we sort of use that in our vernacular. Like, yeah, and what we, we really mean is say they, yeah. Anglican, Catholic, uh, Orthodox churches are more liturgical. Right. But every church has a liturgy. Yeah, it's a good point. We're not non-liturgical. We actually right. are quite liturgical. We just have a. It, it's it's more a difference between high church, low church terminology of like how important is the ritual aspect? Does it need to be done in a very specific way? And I'd say, I'd say this is something that's actually coming back in vogue. Like, I think it's becoming more popular again. It was, it sort of went out, I think reasonably so, because if you get into too much sacramentalism, then you end up with a static sort of faith. And it's like, why do I have to do all this? You know, it's the old Catholic, like, Sit down, Neil, stand up, you know, do this, say this, say five Hail Marys, right? But that's never what it was intended to be, yes. of course. It's, it's, it's you know, um, it's meant to make things bigger, not more narrow. Ironically, the more static the liturgy is, the more 
dynamic your movement within the ceremony is right because you have to get up you have to yeah exactly and 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 this idea that we are progressively i think becoming more and more of a ritual poor society Hmm. Uh, we don't think as much in terms of symbols where if you go back like this is a much more important thing now i think it's still important to us and we don't maybe recognize it but um but the idea that, you know, the, even if you go back and look at like tribal communities at like an anthropological level, you will see that some communities function on the basis of like, it, it's, it's worse to, to disrespect the ritual than it is to break like a moral code. Mm. Like the ritual carries with it because what is, what is liturgy really? And I've heard it explained this way by a few, few theologians that it's a sort of understanding of where power is received, taken up and, and, dispersed right like Mm. it's all about kind of certain actions toward each other and in reverence to and in like you know what i mean it just has a certain i don't know if that's a great way to explain it but it's there's a power dynamic involved in liturgy that's important for us even in the laying down of power and taking it up Um, and that's probably that difference of view that you just described that it's it's almost worse to break a a ritual rule than a moral rule mm-hmm. is where the Old Testament is often very confusing for us. Right. Because they lived so in a world like strictly, that, right? Yeah. Ritual meant it was so important. And we don't, just don't think like that, at least not here in a great, modern uh, day Canada. A great book on this for anyone interested. And it's a, it's a fairly easy read to the writer's really good. His name is James K.A. Smith. And uh, he wrote a book called You Are What You Love. And basically, this is his argument that, you know, we are not, we like to think of ourselves as just thinking people. Like yes. you hear information and like, oh, when I know the right information, then I'll behave in a certain way. And he's like, you're not that way. You're habitually formed by your habits, like by the, by your liturgy, right? You're a liturgical person. You're not a brain on a stick, I think he says, right? And so you see this in the way that like even he kind of brings up the idea of the shopping mall as its own kind of church. It orients you to do certain things and and create certain behaviors that are just habitual. The church is meant in a way to do the same thing, to orient you to toward the worship of of the triune God, right? Uh, you're you're meant to do that. And so just this is something I think people should be aware of, even though it's not really explained that like almost everything in a church is purposeful. Um, when you walk into an Anglican church or a Catholic church and you see the baptismal font at the back of the room, there's a reason why it's placed back there. When you see a church with the pulpit midway through the pews, there's a reason for that too, according to a certain theology or why it's up front or why it's, you know, different churches are organized differently to convey and communicate certain things that, that are quite important. And I think, I, you know, you can downplay the significance of those things, but ultimately it's like when you, for, when a community behaves in this way for decades <laughs> and then hundreds of years, I mean, it forms a certain way of thinking and acting and being in the world that I think is important. So recognizing what we do and what we place emphasis on is important. And it's, so let me just talk about the Wesleyan context for a second in which, yeah. you know, one of the things we do here is really stripped back. We were founded in a movie theater. That's purposeful, majorly purposeful. And it's, I don't think it's also to say that it's, it's somehow being iconoclastic or saying we're not doing what the Catholics do or something like that. Wesley's theology was deeply influenced by this idea of the priesthood of all believers. And one of the things that he wanted to do was, you know, he was called by the Great Commission, right? He, he wanted to move out and, and preach the gospel. And 
Wesleyanism is sort of built on the foundation of the idea that like in order to preach the gospel, you have to go and bring it out to the world, you know, go preach to the coal miners because they're the ones who need to hear the message. Right. Wesley's whole objective though, as an Anglican was to bring them eventually back into the church. And so I think something like Deepwater, the church we're in, is is really trying to do that that first step really well. And I think it does do it really well. We want to make a comfortable environment for somebody to come into that doesn't have a lot of alienating symbols, right? Even though those symbols eventually should be should come to be seen as beautiful, transcendent images of the divine that help you in that process. We are focused on going, how do we how do we just get somebody to just come hear the word? So for us, it's less the drama theater aspect, even though that's an element, and it's more the lecture. It's more the like, and I don't mean lecture in any sort of like, I don't want to downplay it, yes. to preach the word of God. You want to hear the word and receive the sacrament. Um, that's And we try and make the communion, therefore, far less, you know, a, a process of a sort of ritual thing. Um that is really more a practical, pragmatic move than it is anything. There's a theology that's deeply driving it, but it's it, it it's not saying that's everything there is. It's kind of getting you in the door. You know what I mean? And this is where I think ecumenical movements are important and why I'm pleased with the way our church does that. We talk to Catholics and Anglicans and and. You know, like if you went and worshiped at an Anglican church, no one's going to hit you on the wrist for that. You know what I mean? Like it's, <laughs> it's good. Maybe it might be good for your soul to kind of get in and do more of that liturgical stuff. We have even talked here at this church of moving into more liturgical practices for people who would be interested in doing that. Because, and again, like you, to your point, more liturgical. I just mean, what, what elements could we bring in that might be edifying? There's a place, I think, for the church to be like the culture it's in. Yes. Uh, there's a place for that. And there's also a place for being distinct. Right. And on. that can shift from time to time, depending on your unique church and your, what you're trying to do and many factors. But, you know, so there's some churches who will, uh, you know, this I think comes from like the eighties and nineties, the Willow Creeks, the Saddleback, Mm-hmm. churches, mm-hmm. the seeker-sensitive Yeah, movement, the term seeker-sensitive. Right, uh, emphasizing we want as much as we can make uh, make what we do culturally relevant. And there's, I think there's some, some folks from perhaps more liturgical high church uh, traditions who would sort of look down on that. Mm-hmm. But again, there's a time and a place for that. I'm not trying to, to diss that. But on the other hand, I think it's it's it can be very hard. For, I think for some folks, I've been to a, a several Catholic services uh, because I have a bunch of friends who are who are Catholic. They're awesome Jesus followers, you know. Like mm-hmm. I have no issue with that. In fact, my uh, children's godparents are Catholic, so I don't have an issue with that. It's just there's a, just a different cultural feel. Yeah, I, right. I just I I know that God is present in a Catholic service and. And he's yep. working there, you know, as as far as my own sense of the, the Spirit's presence means anything to anyone. But I've, I've <laughs> right. been to Catholic right. services. I'm like, man, the Spirit is here. Yeah. But I don't know. It's just not my kind of thing. Right. You know. And I think that it's. I think there's sometimes it's fair I, for us to say that. I like what you said there about. Yeah. I think I agree that I think there's a time and a place where I think I'd be more on the side just. Uh, in this time and place now of speaking to the, maybe the importance of those more alienating quote unquote mm. things within the church that I think are coming back because I'm yes. going, we've spent so long trying to 
um, you know, communicate the gospel to, to a, let's say a deaf society that doesn't have biblical literacy and all of this. And so we've tried different tactics, but there is an element in which the church just should be the church and remain kind of like, yeah, we have these practices precisely because they're countercultural and they look this way. Um, I, I just notice a number of, you know, for me growing up, in that Anglican world and still really in a way, just identifying myself as an, there's no reason why me being in the Wesleyan church has had to make me break away from that. They're not that, you know, I always say John Wesley was an Anglican until the day he died. So I'm in good company here. Right. Um, there are elements of that worship that I, I miss deeply and, and things that I go eventually that would be so important for any believer in any context to just like, you know, one of the things, let me just say a couple of them, but like in the Anglican church that I was raised in, the language of Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy was repeated all that, not only that, but repeated refrains, like the idea that the whole church would say together the mm. creeds or the Lord's prayer or say those, kind of, you know, the, the prayers of confession or whatever you're doing. Yes. Um, you know, we've, purposely tried to go, let's not force anybody to do any of that just yet. That's kind of the church model. I think there's a time and a place for that. There's wisdom in that. But then there's also this sense of like saying a creed together is an important, you know, singing the Psalms together is an important ritual liturgical practice that would benefit us if we, if we opened ourselves to it. And so then you hear that language, for instance, of Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy. Where are we talking about mercy the mercy of God being needed for us on a weekly basis. To me, I find that edifying. I'm not saying that it absolutely, you know, I'm not saying deep water as a church making a mistake, not doing it. I'm saying, right. I'm saying these things are, are elements of worship that uh, deserve our time to think about, I think, you know, and there are things you can practice and do with each other. You don't need to go to an Anglican church necessarily to make that happen. I just noticed the transition myself and go, Oh, those things, they become more edifying to me the deeper I go in my faith. And I'm like, oh, yeah, you know, the reasons why I want it to be more of a drama. Uh, you know, I want to sit and contemplate more than I want to uh, to listen to a 45-minute sermon, that kind of thing, right? But there's places for all of that. That's That's kind of what I'm referring to, yeah. I don't know if I'm stepping on any toes. Eh? You're totally <laughs> stepping on my toes. I'm very offended. <laughs> no. Just give me a moment while I recover. You know, actually, you know, Colin, that, that raises to me another thing we haven't talked about or another movement in the church, which is yes. Pentecostalism. Oh, yeah. You know, because sure. Pentecostalism, Pentecostalism, first of all, its its origins really aren't that. There's a difference between charismatic theology and Pentecostalism. And charismatic theology you can find in all throughout the tradition, the movement of the spirit, okay? Um but what Pentecostalism did in the 20th century, specifically like 1906, I maybe have that date yep. right, with the Azusa Street mission, right? William J. Seymour um, and the Azusa Street mission, I think it was called, yep. right? The church. And that movement of Pentecostalism grew from, in, in 90 years, grew from zero to 400 million people worldwide. Yeah. Like you got to pay attention to that. That's right. And, and one of the hallmarks, the reason why I bring that up in terms of like an ecclesial way is that Pentecostalism, one of its strengths in a sense, is that it didn't rely on long, deep traditions. It could move into almost any culture and, 
and take shape there in this new kind of radical way. And, uh, and like, that's just something again to sort of pay attention to is like, and that's why it influenced every, it, it got its roots into Calvinism, uh, into uh, Catholicism and the rest. Right. I yes. mean, it's there. And yeah. It's, so uh, when we're talking about Pentecostalism, we're speaking specifically of that movement that started at Azusa yeah. street in California. Yes, that's right. Um, and became, Many different denominations. There's like another the movement. PAOC. There was another in Canada, movement in Pentecostal in Topeka, Kansas, too, around the same Quite time. Quite possible. Bethel, yeah, uh, that's that sounds right. Yeah. Uh, but then when we're talking about the charismatic movement, we're talking about a Pentecostal feel yeah, that starts right. to bleed into other denominations. So there's Catholic charismatics, there's Protestant charismatics, and all the yeah. the whole deal, right? Um, I actually went to there was a, a rather charismatic uh, church in my denomination that I went to when I was in Bible college, which was a very new mm-hmm. and interesting for me, but I really, really appreciate it. And um, so, so yes, that's really important. And, you know, you mentioned how you missed certain aspects of the, uh, of, of, of the, the liturgy, Anglican really? church, you of know, the liturgy the- here at, at Deepwater, you know, you have to think that how does, a movement that's like about a hundred years old yeah. to come to be so prominent in the face of, of Christianity of the world. Yeah. There has to be some level of, of perhaps God himself was like, right church, on, yeah, you're missing you gotta something. Got to pay attention. And, sure. and he, he brought uh, that out and, you know, again, and I think liturgy connects to this too, from a much more uh, natural sense I have many friends of mine, uh, you know, uh, I've had many Christian friends, you know, from Bible college and such, and uh, not a lot of them always listen to Christian music. And one of the things I know that one of my friends said at one point was that uh, he, while he appreciated some of the songs that's in modern Christian music or whatever, one of the things he would often say is that they don't know when to stop. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's not just a nice three or four yeah. minute song that ends. Because a, a Christian song, off, especially if it's being recorded live, right, you'll just go go for like six, seven, eight, nine minutes. Yeah. And does does the song "Oceans" actually have an ending, yeah. or is that bridge? <laughs> does the bridge just go on forever? <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And you know, and but I think on one level, as funny as strange as it might sound, I think that brings out some of that same feeling of, of yeah. uh, the liturgy, like having pre-written sermon, the sermon, excuse me, pre-written prayers and other sorts of things. Yeah. Like, I, I don't know how you describe that. The Lord well, have the, mercy, uh, God have mercy, thing that's that part sort of, of it thing. Like, it, that, beca- that naturally, that, that hole in the church gets filled by this sort of extended worship yes. uh, that comes along with Pentecostal and uh, charismatic yeah. influence in A freedom in to it and stuff. But at the same time, that's exactly where, you know, part of what I'm saying about it is not that, like, theologically it's so important everyone needs to do it. It's not about a need to do it. It's about what could benefit. But it's also the fact that it's just, I was just raised in it. There's yes. something that's so comforting and uh, and familiar, I guess, about about, like, those those written... Uh, not no, not the creeds, but the prayers, right? Yes. Uh, and they're very rich, and they bring language Absolutely. that I wouldn't normally. And so I almost find it difficult now to not like if I'm praying, 
with people at church and stuff, I typically will add some of those refrains and yeah. go into them. It's easier for me in one sense, but they also, yeah. I feel like, enhance my my language. And pastorally for myself, I've often encouraged people to not just pray serendipitously the way evangelicals often do, because I yeah. think... Right. I think honestly, sometimes we pray terrible prayers as evangelicals, <laughs> sure. to be honest. So the just, but, the constant just. Yes. Just God, just. God, just do this. Yeah. But I mean, I also, we just the content of our prayers, you know. Yeah, of, I know. We what just you're pray yeah. for dumb things. Whereas I think that, as you say, there's this rich heritage we have as Christians. There's some great right. prayers that have been written before us. Let's use those. Let's get wise. You can call it dumb prayers, it. Colin, but Tom Brady did come back out of retirement. So my prayer worked, all right? My, <laughs> it was answered. And people said it was a stupid prayer, Ben. And I said, you just wait. <laughs> um, but it's funny. I remember saying this to some folks at a church I was going to, and they were like, I don't really believe in that. I don't think you should say right. a, a pre-written prayer. You should. You don't have to. You could just pray, say whatever you want. I'm like, but what are you doing during one of those songs when we're singing "Oceans," you know, for 12 minutes, and you're just saying those those mm-hmm. lyrics again and again? What's the difference between that and you know, prayerfully singing a song? Yeah, right. And, and saying uh, the prayer of of. Francis, uh, Francis of Assisi, or yeah, yeah, or the prayers from the Book of Common Prayer of the Anglican Church, or yeah, and, and that's the Serenity Prayer for us recovery people. I'm not trying to put a grade on whether you know how good or bad it is to do any of these things. Well, I'm but not so, saying that. You know, either. I know, I'm just but, saying. but I'm simply trying to say, but it does make it. There is a difference, yes. and I think that's important. I mean, this is a thing I'm pretty big on. Is, is this idea of form and content yeah. sort of like the way it's a medium is the message sort of Marshall McLuhan philosophy if you and you know anything of that I'm sort of borrowing it from you, him I'm you, not yeah, saying yeah you haven't dropped saying. enough philosophers names in you're right jeez oh, what like, am I doing I didn't even, thank the lord you've had but, Marshall McLuhan what would we have done yeah. <laughs> thanks <laughs> but but it's true I think there's a you know um, I, I like I said I think society is is ritual poor that's a quote from a guy named Byung-Chul Han another philosopher gonna name oh, you were making no. up for it now. Yeah, I'm making, making up, up for, for it now. It now. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, 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 all joking aside, I think the, uh, the, I think I'm trying to pay more attention to the idea that even though in our society we don't think too much in terms of that, um, uh, but it's really, it really does shape us and really does inform us. And so the way in which, like, you know. Again, not, this isn't trying to uh, to trash it because it's certainly a part of our tradition, but there's a reason why, like, our style of church, you're typically, things are mediated through a personality, hence a worship team. Yes. Hence, a, hence like, we have a head pastor who, like, is in many ways, now, we've done a good job of diversifying that. Yes. But, I mean, in many ways, it's like, he's the face, yeah. you know? And... I think it takes the humility of that pastor and, and I think AJ, our pastor, does that very well where it's like, this isn't about me. This isn't about me and if it were about me, then I need to walk away for a little bit. As a matter of fact, he's done that in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's there's a way in which that's like the pulpit, so the idea of the pulpit within the church classically is meant to hide the preacher. There's the whole reason for it was that you not that you could orate, you could hear him, but there was a lectern and there was a, you know, like he would hide behind it. So you wouldn't see him as much that oh, it's like, it shouldn't be as much. At least it's an it idea. For pounding on. Also I that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure there were many pulpit <laughs> pounders who, you know, but I mean, there's that idea that it should be, or the idea that like, that's what, why do you sing hymns as opposed to have a worship team? Well, it's a little outdated for us. We might feel, but it's like, 
the, the point was, this is the congregation singing. You know, all of us joined in unison, not being led by necessarily one person. Now, I'm not saying it's wrong to have a worship team. I'm saying we have to think about those differences and decide what, I, maybe I'm being a little bit too like flexible with it for some people, but I would say like, you have to, you have to decide for yourself what the expression uh, you believe to be correct is. What is the most biblical? And I don't think it's as clear. I don't think it's a clear cut line of like, this is, I know some churches that would say, you know, some classically Orthodox churches or something like that would be like, you only sing the Psalms. It's the only thing you're supposed to sing, (laughs) you know, none of this new, but where does that, you know, I'm not trying to make a, a, you know, (laughs) you guys make up your own mind on that one, but I, you know, these are relevant uh, discussions because how we act, this goes to James K.A. Smith's point, right? You are what you love. You are your habits. You are the way you're more of a liturgical creature. So the things you engage in and participate in, they communicate to you in a certain way and, and affect the way you live and move and have your being. Yeah. And And so this also kind of leads, kind of leads us full circle to what we started talking about in the sense that, you know, the, the division of the church is not necessarily always no. a bad thing. No. It, it is because some of us like to just pray extemporaneously and some of us like to use yeah. pre-written prayers. And please right. forgive me for, for me saying I people pray dumb prayers. Sometimes we do. <laughs> yeah. Not, not I think all everyone, everyone knows what you are, mean. I never bad, am critical of people's prayers. But, but I think I know uh, you know, some of us like to just have, as you say, the, the congregation singing a cappella, and yeah. some of us like to have a worship team with the full bands and everything yeah. like that. And there, I don't know if there's too many wrong ways to do church. Um, but I, I'm sure there is, but I'm just saying that there's definitely room for different cultural preferences Right on, yeah. But it glorifies God ultimately. That's 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 the main thing that we do at church. Yeah, right. Going back to a- yeah, and that's exactly like I I don't. Uh, some people would want to take much harder of a line on this and say this is the proper way to worship and this is what you have to do. And actually, you know, maybe some of their arguments are worth entertaining. I, I probably myself sit more in the in the sense of like we should all be moving towards some of these traditions. But then you get into and we can kind of I don't want to go too much into this. We've been talking for a while anyway. But you know, then you then there are real decisions of like as far as the church goes like uh communion is it open to everybody or is it open to believers only like that's a huge thing you'll find depending on the church you're in if you go to a catholic church you're not catholic you don't get to partake in the communion and some people see this i find some people will take that as like they're offended almost by it or they find that exclusionary and it's like I want to i want to actually defend them on that i want to go like i understand that i don't share that theology but I also understand how they think of communion, right? And I can understand that, like, for them, when you talk about transubstantiation or something, think about the way in which they, like, that to them is the real body and blood of Jesus Christ. And that they can't just be, we might, we might say, for exactly that reason, you should share it with everybody. But you might also say, like, then it shouldn't be abused. Like, you should have to, you should know what you're partaking in, Right. If that's truly what they believe and what's being said, and that you know, and you can understand that, then I think there's no reason to 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 like fight them tooth and nail on the fact that they won't let you take communion. I, I think, don't disagree with you entirely there. I think I think I I also want to defend uh, uh, Catholics uh, for many of the things that we as as Protestants love to throw stones at them yeah, for. Right. But I think you know when we're talking about you know these different ways that we're trying to glorify God and what we do. Um, the point is, I think that we need to have, I think, 
what would help with the division is if we as churches gave other branches of the Christian tree the permission to be a different branch. Yeah, I think that's what I may be getting like, at. Is let's, like, let's you're let not going to change Catholic. that. Yeah. Let's let Orthodox folks be Orthodox. The challenge, I think, comes in is when we are so into our own tradition that we devalue someone else's tradition. And I think that right. that would... That is the problem. Not necessarily, it's not a problem that we have our church here and then there's, you know, the Catholic church down the street and the Pentecostal and, church. And it's not the to say street. there aren't lines. Yeah, right? I mean, right. this is where, and we, and this is where being creedal in one sense kind of matters. At least, yeah. you know, I would say it does. And where, and where, you know, are we accepting like uh, Mormons in that conversation? I would say, no, we, I would, I would differentiate and say, I think you're doing it wrong. You know, and that's, and I could say it respectfully and I still allow them to be themselves, but I'm not, you know what I mean? Like I, I, there's, there has to be some kind of, it's, it's like that discussion of heresy of like, you're not trying to find somebody who's bad to exclude them. You're trying to say how much elbow room do we have before we, before we're crossing lines. And, um, I'm willing to accept a far wider range, I think of ecclesial expressions than I know some more, you know, rigid, Protestants might be on the idea of like no Catholics there's, aren't part of that community, right? Well, and there's like, rigid folks on it on every. Well, every exactly, and sector. this is you I, know, I know there's some Catholics who don't think yeah. Protestants are real Christians. But if anything, this podcast was just to get people thinking about those actions and what it is we're doing as a church and recognizing that they are purposeful and they do shape us. And so, thinking about our liturgy, what we do. And and how we say it, and what what is the communal aspect, and how do we see ourselves as a church? I think is all important. Just kind yeah. of go like, where's the emphasis being laid here? Because, like I said, most people who come here probably aren't thinking of themselves as Wesleyans. They're just here because it's a it's a community that that has accepted them, and they feel like the teaching's good, and it, it, whatever you know, all kinds of reasons. Um, that's great. I want you here? And I'm kind of I hold an ecclesiology that basically, I, I won't won't argue for it here, but I mean, just to say, I'm more of the mind that you kind of just go to the church that's in your neighborhood and you stay there and try and work it out. <laughs> you know what I mean? I wouldn't tell anybody to leave their church quickly. Uh, yes. I would, I would well, say, that's, yeah, that's stay a, where you are. That's a whole other conversation. Is, yeah, it right? is for sure. But, but yeah, I would agree but with But these that. different expressions, I think, I think there's more overlap than, than, um, really distinctiveness that keeps us apart. My pastor cheers for the New England Patriots. Yeah, I, I can't, can't stay in I'm that I'm not church. doing it no more. I'm not <laughs> doing it no more. Well, anyway, it's been a good conversation about ecclesiology. Absolutely. Look forward to people's comments, and we'll, uh, we'll carry it on in the following weeks here. Sounds good. Great. 